Roisin Meats, in association with the new Audi A1. You're listening to the Irish Times Roisin Meats podcast. Now, some of you will have first come across my next guest in Bracken and the Reardons and then movies like Miller's Crossing and The Usual Suspects. And some of you will know him more recently from In Treatment, for which he received an Emmy nomination. And it's my great pleasure to welcome that great Dubliner, Gabriel Byrne, to the Irish Times studio. Oh, thanks, Roisin. It's nice to be here. And it's lovely to have you here, especially as it's Father's Day weekend. Mm -hmm. And we can talk about all things fathers and sons. You're involved in the hospice book, which is a great project. Why did you get involved with it? Well... Um, through through um, a personal experience that I'd had of um, actually two people that I had been close to who who um, who died uh, in n- not the most wonderful uh, of situations in in a, in a public ward in a hospital, and um, I also had lost some somebody who was taken care of in a, in a hospice situation, and I saw the difference in in the way they were taken care of and in the way their their last agonies were um, relieved, and the tremendous care uh, and compassion that uh, was. I'm not, I'm not saying there wasn't care and compassion in the hospital, but the the the, the atmosphere of the public hospital militated against um, <clears throat> the the. Um, the easier uh, passage from from life to uh, to death, and uh, I knew that it was something I had to get involved with because uh, how we die is is something that we don't give really enough thought to. We we spend an awful lot of time thinking about how we how we live, but it's inevitable that we are all going to pass, and how we pass is uh, tremendously important, and it should be. It should be something that we do with uh, dignity uh, and um, with as much compassion as, as possible. And the Irish Hospice supplies that. And uh, as, I, as I said before, I think that, um, you know, we should have a hospice in every, in every city, in every town in the country. <coughs> Can me. I ask you about those two people, about the two different mm. stories and who they were and what the impact both of them had on you? Well, it, it was, you know, when you walk through the doors of a hospital, I, I often find myself putting on what I call my hospital face uh, because I have to steel myself against the reality, uh, the, uh, the, the, for want of a better word, the sensual reality of the hospital because you have to take in the experience uh, through the senses. The first thing that hits me when I walk through the door is the smell, the hospital smell. Um, and then the sights, as you walk down a corridor and you look into rooms and <clears throat> if you look at the, the faces of the people who are sometimes looking back at you, um, you see in their faces a kind of a powerlessness, a helplessness. Um, um, they do not want to be there. Um, and then something that never fails to uh, maybe depress me is the food that's handed out in hospitals. I mean, I look at the food that patients are given and I think to myself, I wouldn't, I w- if this was handed to me in a restaurant, I'd hand it back. Mm. Surely a hospital is a place where uh, you're entitled to adequate nutrition, at least. Um, and also, 
um, a hospital should be a calming place. And when you think about the aesthetics of a hospital, you, you, you tend to think, well, they have that sickly green color everywhere and um, the noises that uh, th- that really militate against the, the tranquility of, of, of the patient. Um, and the public ward itself where people are fighting to talk to loved ones and television football matches are on. And there's no, there's no separation between one bed and another. These are what I call the aesthetics of, of the hospital. Uh, there's nothing calming for the, for the eye to... Like, if you checked into a, a, a bed and breakfast and it looked like a hospital, you'd check out again. Yeah. And yet a hospital should be a place of uh, repose and tranquility and calm and, uh, and so forth. That's not, to, that's not to say that the people who work in hospitals do an amazing, do an amazing job under uh, incredibly difficult circumstances. But if you have to be in a place where you realize that perhaps you may not get out of... Um, I wonder what that does to your mind, because illness is also, it, 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 as the Chinese recognized 5,000 years ago, it just isn't about the body, it's also mind about the body, mind. Yeah. Yeah. And it was your partner that you saw in, dying in the public hospital situation? No, I didn't, I didn't see her die, but I saw her mother die. And, <clears throat> you know, I'll always remember uh, one, of the few, one of the last times I went to see her, the nurse came out and she said, well, you'll have to give her a few minutes. And I could see her from where I was. And I found it very poignant that what she was doing was putting on her lipstick and her makeup and, and uh, you know, c- combing her hair. And I thought to myself, you know, that's the reality of being human, is that you're, you're still a person and you still want to look your best, even in those situations. And the nurse said, oh, you, she's, she's, you know, she, you can go in now. Hmm. But I had seen that. And for some reason, that really touched me. And um, the last conversation I had with her was uh, trying to hear, overhear what she was saying to me um, through people who are at the next bed who are having a great time because their person wasn't as ill and the television set. Mm. And I just thought, this is not the way uh, one should be talking to somebody who's ill and as it turned out it was the last conversation we had I saw my mother in hospital and uh, I saw my father and uh, my sister I've seen a lot of people in hospital and I'm a coward when it comes to hospitals a lot of us are Mm. what about then you you talked about the contrast with the hospice experience and that you had an Mm. experience of seeing somebody in that context Mm. Well, nurses in most hospitals are overworked, and so they can't they can't obviously give out the kind of care and compassion to every single person that I'm sure most of them would like to. Mm. In the hospice, uh, because people are trained to deal with end of life um, uh, situations where people are in great pain. Um, What is so moving is the love and compassion that people have, uh, those people who work there, for people in their last last days. One of the saddest things I ever heard is there's a society in Los Angeles where a group of volunteers come together 
to sit at the bedside of people who don't have anybody to sit with them. That to me is one of the saddest things I've ever heard. And uh, it's the small, merciful things that, uh, you know, just to listen to somebody, to hold their hand, to, to talk to them, to reassure them, um, those are things that you can't put a price on. Mm-hmm. And uh, who was it then you saw in a hospice context and uh, were able to see that care given? Yeah, uh, I saw um, um, my uh, my wife's uh, grandmother died. We sat with her for the last three days, and I got to know everybody else in that uh, in that hospice, and. Um, You can't, uh, there's not much you can do in terms of alleviating the pain, but just for them to look up and see that you're there um, was a tremendous reassurance. And so um, that was uh, one too many per- people I've seen, I've seen pass on. So, um, you know, we all have a fantasy that we're going to die surrounded by the people that we love and we get to say the last words and, you know, we get to say all the reassuring things. And I remember in the old Westerns, they used to have a little tension moment when the guy would be dying and he would say, uh, the treasure is buried in the... <coughs> and then he'd die. <laughs> where, where, where? Um, so we have this fantasy that we uh, we'll die in this very idyllic setting and everybody that we love and we've forgiven all our enemies and we've uh, settled all our affairs but life doesn't happen like that no um so how we die we don't know but at least if we're going to die in hospital it should be in a place of um warmth human warmth and and uh, and compassion and love and, and the book Fathers and Sons is going to raise money, uh, much needed funds for, for the hospice. So tell me about, it is Fathers and Sons, tell me mm. about your daddy. What was he like? Well, my father was the, um, I often think, you know, um, parents now say, oh, children, teenagers, oh my God, oh, technology. <laughs> oh, how are we going to deal with this at all? It wasn't like that in my day. Well, my father was going home with stuff like that <laughs> when I was growing up because he thought the radio was an astonishing thing. <laughs> Yeah. He'd be and listening, it and it was, you know, compared to what was there before. People sitting around a fireplace talking about local things. Suddenly, they were exposed to another world through the magic of radio. My father used to shave in the morning before he went out to work. He used to go to seven o'clock mass every morning, and I would wake uh, early in the morning to hear him talking back to the radio. Um, and it was all he'd always have it on this very crackly BBC thing because it was RT didn't open till. I didn't know eight o'clock or something, whatever they were doing, but the BBC were up before them, <laughs> and 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 so on this crackly radio, you'd hear this, you'd hear this kind of voice say, "This is the BBC Home Service," and my father would be uh, say, and they say, "The Prime Minister, Mr. McMillan, oh yeah, Mr. McMillan, <laughs> yeah, the Suez Canal. Well, let's see how you get on with that, Mr. McMillan," as he'd be shaving. Um, so, um. He was a product of a Victorian sensibility. It's hard to kind of mm. remember that, but he was born in 1915 and um, <clears throat> in, in Kildare. 
And throughout his life, he was born in the First World War. He would have gone through the War of Independence. He would have gone through the austerity and depression mm. of the 30s, the Second World War, the, uh, the 50s austerities, the rise of prosperity in America where, you know, I remember him thinking, oh, my God, you can actually listen to a boxing match in Madison Square Gardens and look what the Americans are doing. Look at the cars they have in the swimming pools. And so a, another vision of life was beginning to come in at the edges. And then when you think about what those people had to face... Suddenly, they were talking about nuclear war. They were talking about miniskirts. They were talking about the pill. They were talking about women being in charge of their own sexuality for the first time, which to a, a, a patriarchal society was a gigantic um, threat. And uh, for them, it was a world they, they couldn't understand. And <clears throat> he, like many of his uh, contemporaries, was cast adrift in a world that he didn't understand. Television came in. And um, and then he had the unique experience of, for a man that was fascinated with the radio, of seeing his own son on television. And I went up um, <clears throat> to see the first thing that I was ever in. It was a, a series called uh, The Reardons, which ran in Ireland for a very long time. And I was in the last kind of six months of it. And it was his favourite programme. <laughs> and I got into it. And I went up to see the first episode I was in, which was a bizarre experience anyway, watching yourself on, yeah. on television. Um, I think I had to throw a bale of straw or something, and uh, <clears throat> I forget what it was. But anyway, um, he stared at the television, and in, I was sitting behind him, and uh, he turned around and he said to me, isn't technology a wonderful thing all the same? No, isn't television a wonderful thing all the same? There you are, and, and there you are. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> yeah. Was he strict, Gabriel? No, not really. He tried to be. Like, he, he would be, he, like, I'm sure, uh, like, fathers have said the same thing. If you don't, uh, quieten down, I'm coming up there right now. And then he'd make noise with his feet on the stairs. And after a while, you thought, no. And, and then sometimes he'd lose and he'd come up, I'm taking off the belt, I'm coming up this day. And he'd come in. and, But he wasn't really strict. My mother was the uh, strict one. And um, he lost his job when he was, uh, when he was 50. He was, uh, he was made redundant. And he and his friends never recovered from that. And, um, was that in Guinness's? Yeah, yeah. And I didn't understand it at the time, but... Of course, anybody who loses a job, it's not just that you lose the money every week. You lose so much. You lose self-esteem. You lose dignity. You, you lose a sense of purpose. You lose a sense of the future. And you begin to develop this identity of, of being useless. And the way society looks on people who are unemployed makes unemployed people feel ashamed. Mm. And they feel it's their own fault. And he never he never had another uh, he never had another job again, and I think it uh, contributed to his <coughs> reasonably <coughs> excuse me early death. He was also a product of, I think, uh, at that time working class culture. They they smoked, they drank, they drank. The diet was not good. He didn't really take exercise. He used to take the dog out for a walk, and um, 
but that usually meant he went up to the cuckoo's nest and we found that out because when he went into hospital I took the dog for a walk up the Green Hills Road and at the cuckoo's nest the dog crossed the road and went into the cuckoo's <laughs> nest and all the fellas who were sitting at the counter were saying oh there you are Rusty how are you here's your crisp and you never knew that <laughs> we never knew that That's yeah crazy. so yeah. and what age was he when he died 60 67 and if you think back on him what do you think it is that um that he passed on to you or where do you see yourself in him now? Uh, that's the, the, that's an interesting question. How much do we inherit of mm. our fathers and, and mothers? And um, you inherit very basic things, I think. that I think I inherited his uh, shyness. He was a shy man. I think um, I inherited his kind of um, humour, which was... A, a, strange kind of observant humour um, I like to think that I, uh, that I inherited his essential goodness that's what I admire uh, about him, his modesty and his, his, his goodness and that's not meant to be a trumpet call for myself, I think there's a lot of things that I inherited that I wish I hadn't but um I don't think my father, like many of those fathers, knew what the role of a father was. They wouldn't even put role and father together. The man's job was to go out, earn money, bring it back, give it to the wife. The wife would then give you a pound back for a drink and cigarettes and you went to the pub. Um, your job was to put food on the table. All the things that we now think about, like hugs and, 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 and um, you know, heart-to-heart -heart conversations and all those things. I remember when television came in, came in first, um, we used to watch these American shows where kids would bound down in the mornings for breakfast and the father and the mother would be sitting there and they'd be saying, uh, so what are you going to do today, Jasper? And he'd say, oh, we're going to play baseball and then we're going to the beach and then we're going up to uh, uh, Josephine's house because she's having a little bit of... And you'd look at this and you'd say, what? fathers and mothers having breakfast with kids and talking and they're, they're telling their parents what they're going to be doing. What kind of a, a place is this? So um, my father, l like many men of that generation, were the products, not just of the Victorian and Catholic world in which they were raised, but they were also products of the social conditions at the time. And... Uh, he was a very devout Catholic, and I hope that he never lost his faith before he died. Um, but um, yeah, I inherited a simplicity from him, I think. <clears throat> you said there were things you wished you didn't inherit. Mm. What would they be? Um, well, his brother lived in the country and um, where they were brought up and one night he went to the pub and he was sitting there and this guy said oh you have a you have a house up there in uh, behind the trees there and would you ever think again oh, I don't know I, uh, that's where the house where we were all about anyway to cut a long story short he signed over the house to this guy in the pub for uh, an abysmally small amount of money. And I know why he did it. 
And there's a thing in me, and it was in my father, in that I could see my father easily because he was extremely trusting of people. I could see him being taken advantage of. And I went into a profession in a world where you kind of constantly had to be on your guard against being, you know, doing a version of signing over the, the house for 400 quid. And um, my father said to me once, I remember, he said, whatever you are, don't be an idiot. And sometimes when I'm presented with contracts where, you know, on page 50, there's a little thing written down, I always remember my father, don't be an idiot. And I always say to my agent, can you look at page 54 there and see is there anything in there that could... And, and I remember this thing came in about five or six years ago where when you do something like a, a, an interview, say an American television or something, they get you to sign a thing at the end. Or if you sign up to do a film role or something like that there's a little thing that they've now introduced which says and I agree for this thing to go out and be released in cinemas and on DVD and on television in perpetuity your image is owned by these people in perpetuity that's the word that Jerry Conlon asked the warder at the trial of the Guilford Four, when when the judge said in perpetuity, he said to the the guy, "What's in perpetuity?" And the guy said, "It means you're in forever." So perpetuity. When I saw this word, I said, "Explain perpetuity to me. What does that mean?" He said, "If they invent some version of technology over the next, uh, you know, fifty years, which nobody can foresee yet, they own that image forever." And I heard my father saying, don't be an idiot. <laughs> don't sign it. Don't sign away the family home. And uh, I have that propensity to be an idiot. It's not something I'm terribly proud to admit, but I do have that propensity. And my father had it. My father was taken advantage of also. And did he lose the house that time? He did, yeah. And were I, you all, what, what stage of life was that? Uh, when, we were, uh, when we were quite young. And I still pass that house and look in, and the people who live there don't really know, but I know. From Monday meetings to Sunday road trips and everywhere in between, you're already going places. Now get there in style with the stunning new Audi Q3. And thanks to the safety of our advanced Quattro technology, you'll stay in control whatever road you're on. For wherever you want to go, the new Audi Q3. Begin your next journey. Book a test drive at your local authorised Audi dealer or audi.ie. Audi. Vorsprung durch Technik. Um, I want to get you to read the piece that you wrote for Fathers and Sons about your dad now that we've heard all about him. It's a really lyrical, beautiful piece and uh, I know you have written quite a bit. Um, it's obviously another one of your talents. Well, yeah. <laughs> no, it's a lovely piece. Um, <clears throat> well, you know, in this book, uh, which... Uh, um, AIDS, the hospice. Um, uh, I think a lot of people wrote about their often conflicted relationships with their fathers. Sometimes it was anger, sometimes it was humour. Um, but I wrote about a dream that I had of my father. And I thought the dream was in one way unique to me. But then subsequently I heard that it's a quite a common dream where people see people who have passed on reassuring them that they're okay. 
And I had that dream several times. And the last time I had it, I wrote it down. And so uh, I wrote this. Um, I wrote this little piece because it does sum up my 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 my, my attitude to my father, and also it tells about this dream. Um, <clears throat> last night I dreamed of you again, walking in the orchard behind the house. And although a thin moon hung over the fields and the stars were out, I could see you as if in daylight. A shower of apple blossom rained down on you as you raised your hand in that shy half-salute you always gave me, walking in the slightly hunched way that made you seem tentative, like a child entering a room of adults, your face inclined toward the window from where I watched. And oh, my dear dead father, though you are always smiling in my dreams, tonight you seem perplexed, as though you wondered why you were there among the trees at that hour. I call to you, but slowly, slowly the air darkens about you, and I wake with a start as if breaking from underwater, and all is still save the wind now in the apple trees. The night before I had dreamed of the field I had not seen since a boy, where the gypsies rode their wild ponies without saddles, only a piece of sacking out over the hills, which led to the waste ground beneath the electricity pylons, where I played football for Ireland and drank cider with corner boys around fires made from car tyres. Again that extraordinary light of the moon lighting everything, even beyond the houses with the pebble-dashed walls and the forest of television aerials. Suddenly you were there again, seeming lost as if looking for something or someone, a coat over your arm, thinner and more frail, I thought. I ran towards you walk, as you walked away from me. Stop, I cried. I need to know where you are. You seemed in a hurry to be away, but turned and said in a, in a weary voice, You must stop searching for me. I'm not where you think I am. See, over there. Suddenly there was a wide, still river now where the houses were, crowded with ghost people, rows deep, all those I had known and who had passed. It's not your time, they're saying. We're happy. See how we smile, those of us you have known and who have passed. And you faded, and the river faded. And I heard it then in my dream, as one can only hear in a dream, the whoops of wild boys urging their ponies over the gravel to the hills beyond. That's lovely. What was his name? Dan. It's a really lovely piece. Um, you're a father yeah. yourself now. Yeah. Um, and you're based in New York. You're yeah. kind of a New Yorker, Dubliner, I suppose. I, I am, which yeah. Which you are more now. Yeah. Probably still Dublin more, would you say. Um, what kind of a father are you? <clears throat> Well, I think that there's before and after. I have a vague memory of what it was like before uh, my children arrived. And I don't think that you ever get to a place as a father where you say, okay, well, now I, I succeeded extremely <laughs> well at that. What's life's next challenge? Um, it's a halting mistake-ridden, vulnerable, um, 
uncertain journey where oftentimes your, your, your intent to do the right thing is misconstrued or um, doesn't, doesn't quite work out the way you wanted it to. Um, it has all kinds of contradictory feelings in it. The idea that you have, as a father, a kind of a perfect love and tolerance for your children, I think, is a, is a, is a delusion. You can be angry with them, you can be um, disillusioned, but underneath it all is this um, unshakable love that no matter what they do or who they turn out to be, they are part of you and that you will always love them. And that I remember seeing this interview with a guy um, the guy who owned, or he's the manager, the guy who owned Cisco. And uh, somebody said to him once, uh, how do you know your father loved you? And he said, because my father uh, dived into a river and threw me out onto the bank when I was two, uh, when I was two months old. Um, I don't think there's any such thing as a perfect father. I think the only way you learn anything in life is through mistakes. And yet those mistakes don't go into a bank because they serve you really nothing in the end because you have to confront every day with its set of uh, challenges. Um, children don't always listen to you. They go away, they come back, they disagree with you politically. Um, and yet you know they love you and you love them. And um, somebody said once that uh, having children is your parents' revenge on you. There's a lot of truth <laughs> in that. Yeah, I agree <laughs> with that one. Yeah. So, uh, so I've done everything uh, that I hoped uh, was the right thing to do. And uh, they've turned out to be my daughter went away for quite a while because she had to be a teenager. Right. And now we are really good friends. Where she'll call me up and she'll say, Dad, what are you doing? And I say, ah, just reading. Do you want to go for a coffee? And she's starting to tell me about her boyfriends. And I, I'm a divorced father, you know. And um, so for quite a long time, I was a single parent, I suppose, in that context. <laughs> and I remember thinking to myself, well, she's a girl and she's 14, so maybe I should be talking to her about those things. So I remember I sat her down in the kitchen one day and I said, now, um, there's been something I've been meaning to talk to you about, and that is, now, you're a girl and you're 14 and uh, boys and, uh, do you know, bodies are changed and she said dad stop right there you are being so weird right now and then walked out of the room that was it that was it and then i said it to a friend of mine and she said oh god you know that's what mothers do that's the i said yeah but she said, but never mind she said the thing is you tried that's what she'll remember she remember that you were a bit of a fool from trying to deal with that. But then again, I remember my son came in one day and he said to me, when he was very young, he said, Dad, I, be, I, I was watching this commercial on television and I can't understand it. 
I said, well, what is it? And he said, well, there's a girl playing tennis and then she looks really sad and then there's a cup and it fills up with blue water and then she looks kind of happy and then she's out playing tennis again. She looks really happy again. What's that about? I said, I think you should talk to your mother about that. <laughs> I had learned my lesson. <laughs> and what kind of people are they now, both sort of grown up? Are they in their 20s or...? Yeah, they're in their 20s now, yeah. And what are they up to? Uh, my daughter has taken the first tentative steps, much against my uh, will, into acting. Right. And uh, my son is a musician and um, a really, a really fantastic musician. I know you're saying reluctantly that she's, she's following in your footsteps. Mm. Is there any sort of feeling? So tell me about that, first of all, why you're so not happy in a way that she's doing that. Because... Only 2% of the entire population of actors make a living at it. That's, that's an appalling statistic. Um, most people, they look at actors and they only see the kind of red carpet and the cameras and all that kind of stuff and they think, yeah, that's, that's a great... But it's, it's, a, you know, it's a job that's rife with rejection, uncertainty, unemployment... Um, and yes, if you are successful at it, it's tremendously exciting, and um, it's a wonderful door into another into another world. But it tests your sense of belief in in yourself on a daily on a daily basis. And um, I worry about her going into that world, and I worry about her going into a world where women are judged, especially in Hollywood. Well, I suppose it's true of the culture in general about how they look. Mm. And, um, you know, Maggie Gyllenhaal, uh, who's an, ac an American actress, said the other day that she was considered at 37 too old to be the girlfriend of an actor who was uh, 55. Mm. And um, I remember being in a meeting in Hollywood, a casting session with a producer he had no reason to be in the room except that he had billions of dollars and he was bankrolling these movies. And photographs of women were being passed over to him one, one after the other. And he was saying uh, things like, too old, I wouldn't fuck her. Next. And so, the, you know, these women who went into this business uh, full of hope and optimism and excitement and love for what they were doing are now being judged on a photograph like that. Uh, when a woman reaches an age in Hollywood and it can be as early as 31, 32, they're certainly not there anymore. And I suppose the extreme example of that would be somebody like um, uh, Sally Field, who played Tom Hanks's girlfriend in a movie called Punchline and two years later was playing his dying mother in a movie called um, uh, The Forrest Gump, the, the one oh, where he was yeah. the... Um, and so, <clears throat> you know, young girls are held up to impossible physical ideals. And it's just absolutely, it's absolutely crazy. And there, there's a thing where, you know, the camera puts seven pounds on you. So all these young actresses are terrified to put on weight. Yeah. And um, you're either Melissa McCarthy or you're, 
Um, and, if, and if you're a Melissa McCarthy type, you'll never really get a chance to be the rom-com lead. So going into that world where you're trying to say, look, um, really, it's, it's not about how you look. It's about what you are. And I noticed that even when she was a young girl, for example, you'd be out for a walk and I'd be out walking with the two of them. And you saw in the culture that it had already begun the definition of what of what I meant, like they'd say to her, that's a beautiful dress you have on. You're so pretty. Who did your hair? And they'd say to him, what are you going to be when you grow up? <laughs> and so not only do you, are, are you judged physically in, 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 in that way, but uh, you, um, the kinds of roles that are written for women are so limiting. You're the wife, you're the mistress, you're the bad woman, you're the villainess. Or whatever. And it's such a limiting, uh, uh, you know, uh, universe to inhabit. So I really worry about that. Um, Cheryl Sandberg's husband who died recently, mm-hmm. he's held up um, as, you know, kind of a very strong male feminist. Mm-hmm. Would you consider yourself in that way or in those terms? Well, see, I, I, I don't know that I agree with the label feminist. It already kind of assumes that it's something separate. I mean, I would say that um, obviously we, we, we have different biologies and obviously we, we fulfill different roles in the, in, in the kind of um, in the social structure. But we're essentially human beings and uh, all human beings are entitled to the same uh, opportunities. Um, but we still live in a very patriarchal society where men do rule, and, and people like um, Carl, uh, Carl Sandberg are exceptions. Um, it's much better than it was, but um, I think that women have to fight on, on, on a daily basis um, to assert their own um, sense of uh, humanity, not to get labelled by some physical description or by some uh, group that's a, that's a part um, <clears throat> so, I, I some so, some of my daughter's life was in Los Angeles, where you know you heard things like parents getting nose jobs for their eighteen-year-old kids as a, as a present, and where you know their mothers can now go in and get uh, intimate surgery. Uh, you can guess what I'm talking about <laughs> during their lunch times. Yeah. So that's the kind of world that they live in, and mm. and. Uh, it's really hard to try and uh, to keep. And there's also huge pressures on young men as well because one of the things that um, that certainly wasn't around in my day. I mean, the definition of pornography when I was growing up was a tattered, smuggled-in copy of Women's Health, where there was two women uh, on a beach uh, um, in in one-piece bathing suits, bouncing a ball from one to the other, and you looked at it and said, "Oh my God, wow." That's now 10 and 11 year olds have access to pornography. And the problem is that young boys now think that that's the way young girls should behave. And young girls think that that's what young boys want. So the, the days of getting hugely excited when a Valentine's card dropped through your letterbox are, 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 are well gone. And uh, sex uh, and love and romance um, 
don't go together in the same way that they used to in my days. Mm. So I sound like the father in 1960 <laughs> who was saying, Vietnam, miniskirts, pills, what next? Oh, it's all come full circle. Um, I was thinking there as you were talking about how different your children's upbringing was from mm. yours and particularly for, for you. I know you, the Catholic Church with your dad being quite religious mm. and uh, you taking on that as you grew up as well. Where are you with all that now? You've been very outspoken about the Catholic Church in the past and mm. continue to be. Um, I'm thinking of the same-sex referendum result. Mm. Was it meaningful to you in that way in, in terms of a watershed moment of, of this country sort of shaking off something in terms of the Catholic Church? Oh, absolutely. And I mean, I think people have been much more articulate about that than, uh, than, um, than, than I could be. Um, the truth is it goes back to that thing we were talking about the early, uh, earlier on. Why should one group or religious organisation or sect legislate for the emotional and sexual lives of another group? Um, it was a victory. Now I think we have to look for other things that have... Um, like, for example, I, I, I would think that it's important to look at our education system and to think... Uh, why is 92% of our educational system still in the hands of a religious organisation or organisations? And what kind of curriculum is laid out for those people? I remember seeing a very interesting documentary in, in the United States in which myself and my wife were the only two people in the audience in the Walter Reed Theatre. And the documentary was about the curriculum and how it's laid down. And I thought to myself, who lays down the curriculum in Ireland? Who draws up what's history and what's mm -hmm. English and what's on the, 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 um, the, 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 um, the curriculum of study for young kids? But when you look at the kind of education, well, certainly the education that I had, and I don't know that it's terribly different, I learned history in England and in Ireland. And the history I was taught in Ireland taught me to feel rather than to think. History was emotional. The English were bad guys, we were good guys. That's as, as complex as it <laughs> got. Then I went to England and I saw that 1% of England's history was Ireland. And I thought, wow, okay, they think about Cromwell in a very different way. So um, how, we, how we educate our children is something that we should all be concerned about and we should all have a say in it. And we should be on school councils and we should be saying, no, 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 no religious classes, no having to go and get your kid baptised so they can get into a school. That's something that we should be thinking about. And also we should be thinking about uh, abortion and, uh, you know, a woman's, I'm 100% in favour of a woman's right to choose uh, her own biological destiny, 100%. Amnesty International have just come out and said that um, it's a violation of the rights of women and mm -hmm. girls in Ireland that mm -hmm. um, are abortion law. Would you yeah, you'd agree with absolutely. that? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, um, you know, the product, when you think about this, that the product of incest or rape, um, I mean, that you would have to carry a baby through to term, that's the, the, that's the, the, the product of a, of a rape. That to me seems barbaric. And yet um, you're denied that. And yet you can get a boat and a plane and go to England, which we were doing in the 50s. And so, uh, yeah, so I think what the yes vote has done is that it has woken people up um, to the uh, awareness 
that if you feel passionately about something, you can actually change it. Enough people came out to say, we're not having this anymore. The right, the right to marry and to love who you want is a human right. And similarly, the right to determine uh, the destiny of your own body is a human right, in my opinion. So uh, maybe we're moving towards uh, a more open, uh, a more open society. Because the society that I grew up in was a place where Archbishop McQuaid, who was an appalling tyrant who ruled Ireland and, in fact, was responsible for drawing up the, uh, the constitution, was passing Cleary's one day. And he saw from his limousine, he saw models in the window with no clothes on them, mannequins. And he immediately issued a, a, a directive to clearly saying that the, the, the mannequins in the window had to be covered up because they were an occasion of sin. That's yeah. pretty amazing. And that was only like 40, 50 years ago. Yeah. You've spoken about um, black periods in your life, Gabriel, times of great difficulty. Um, you've spoken about being abused as a child mm -hmm. um, by the Catholic Church mm -hmm. priests. Uh, where are you with those difficult times and those struggles you've been through? I was thinking of in treatment and being mm -hmm. someone who's <laughs> given the advice. Was it interesting for you making that programme and, I suppose, co having come through difficult times yourself that maybe you needed to talk about as well? Uh, well, in treatment, I think it was a revolutionary <clears throat> uh, show uh, certainly in America, <clears throat> where the notion of therapy is much more accepted than it is here. I think there's still a notion around therapy that it's somehow self-indulgent. But going back to the Catholic Church, the Catholic Church were way ahead of Freud because they invented confession 2,000 years ago, which is essentially therapy in a, in a kind of a primitive form, except that at the end of you get three Hail Marys and you're sent off and everything's forgiven. Um, but therapy, uh, being listened to and being heard is a tremendously important, um, uh, it's, it's almost like, a, somebody said being listened to, it, it, it's almost like a religious, uh, experience being really heard. Um, I think we, we, we have, I, I think that in America where it's more, much more accepted. Freud actually said that the one country in the world that was immune to psychoanalysis was the Irish. I thought that was a great quote. Don't know why, maybe it was the influence of the church. But um, to go somewhere that's uh, sacred and that you can, be, you, you can be listened to and you can talk about your most intimate um, uh, thoughts and feelings, I think it's a wonderful thing. And uh, I wish there had been such a place uh, when I was growing up and I was wrestling with all kinds of things as a teenager and, uh, you know, in my 20s and 30s. Um, it was essentially a television program, so it didn't change <laughs> my um, attitude to anything. But it did make me more aware of the need that I had to go into uh, to go into therapy, which I did after after the show. But that's quite a so it was a catalyst for that. It, it was for that, yeah. And in terms, because there was an avalanche of letters every week from all over America, people saying, "This is my problem. Uh, this is the way my kid uh, acts." Um, they now use it as a teaching tool in the states. I mean, it was a phenomenally uh, successful show in, the, in that it got people thinking and debating issues that before they hadn't. Um, 
everything from Iraq to working mothers and and so forth. And um, yeah, so I was really grateful to 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 be able to be part of that. And what did you get out of the counselling then that you went into afterwards? Did it did it help you, even though it was many years after, say, certain things had happened? Well, you know, it's an ongoing journey. You never get to a place where you say, well, that's sorted. No, no, I'm totally cool. Um, it's it's all a journey. And as soon as you climb one mountain, you look up and you see there's another one. So, so, so you keep going. And I think that one of the things that the education system in Ireland and the Catholic Church and the social structure... Uh, did for me was it did not instill in me a sense of care and love for myself. Mm. It didn't do that. In fact, it seemed to be about negating your own potential. It seemed to be about shaming you in some way. You're not good enough. You should be this. You should be that. And I know that it sounds like therapy speak to say that it's a huge journey to get to a place where you can say you're okay. You're okay as you are. You don't have to be anything else. To be, you have to try to get to a place where you can say, this is the authentic me, and I don't care who likes it or who doesn't like it. I don't have to pretend to be anything. And if something is really bothering me, maybe the best thing I can do is have the bravery to talk about that. Mm. And that's what therapy did for me. I couldn't help noticing that massive clattering on your finger there, mm. which is turned inwards. It's a pretty swanky one. It's mm. the fanciest clattering I've ever seen, I yeah. think. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's yeah. pretty nice. You're coming up to your first wedding anniversary. Is that right? Have you yeah. passed it? Mm-hmm. How is married life? Well, married life is just life, isn't it, really? <laughs> um, it's up and it's down. And, you know, the things that you... Um, the things that you argue about are the things that everybody are I did not leave that there yet look that's it etc etc no I don't want to go yeah okay I'll go so uh, but what it has given me is a tremendous sense of connection Um, I don't think there's anything um, I didn't expect at this stage in my life to meet somebody uh, that I truly connected with Um, because, um, you know, uh, the rela- I, I've had relationships before where I didn't feel I was authentically, truly connected. Um, and uh, this time I do. And it's a wonderful thing to share your life uh, w- with another person. And to try to get through the difficulties and the pleasures of life together. Um, so I'm blessed in that way. And honestly, I, I, I never was a big, I never thought marriage is the be all and end all of everything. Um, principally because I questioned it, you know, questioned that role that was given out to you. Do your intercert, go into fifth year, do your leaving cert, go to university, uh, get a good job, meet somebody, get married, get the mortgage, get the clock, and then uh, sit out in the armchair. Basically, that was laid out in front of me as, as life, and I started to question all those things. And uh, I also questioned the notion of marriage, which I felt at one stage was a scam to kind of uh, pull you into the system. Um, and uh, I didn't see how, if you really cared for somebody, you had to legally declare it and so forth. But um, I'm very happy that uh, that I am 
in that situation because now I see it as a commitment to another person. It's my way of saying, yeah, I really truly commit to you in this situation. God, if you heard me saying this, you'd be mortified. <laughs> hopefully she will hear you. She'll listen. <laughs> Speaking of scams, I have to ask you about the gathering because you mm. did get into trouble for calling it a scam mm. uh, a good while back. Mm. Do you regret that, at, uh, having said that at the time and having questioned it? Because you were a cultural ambassador for mm. Ireland and you questioned about whether this was just a shakedown and whether we mm-hmm. really respected the diaspora as much mm-hmm. as we perhaps mm-hmm. should instead of making fun of them. Mm-hmm. So where, do you, where are you now with those, with those comments and that? Well, first of all, uh, I wouldn't change one word I said about the gathering. What I was doing in 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 that uh, particular incident, I was reporting what I heard in America, and I think having lived there since 1988 and uh, known many many people of different kind of uh, ba- backgrounds uh, in America, um, I was reporting what I heard on the ground. And I heard a great deal of anger. I heard a great deal of resentment. I heard a great deal of misgiving uh, from people who felt that they'd had to leave the country uh, because of uh, economic uh, mismanagement. And uh, I was attacked as if I had said that. And it became personal. And... I was saying to myself, look, I'm just putting out some things here that I think maybe we should be discussing. I met a fellow one day who said, stop me in the street. Like I went to move one way and he stood in front of me and I went the other way and he stood in front of me again. And he adopted this kind of physical stance where he says, I want to have a word with you now, Mr. Burden. I said, yeah. He said, you could have pulled on the green jersey there. Whatever that meant. But anyway... Um, I was at that time ambassador for culture. One thing I learned is that the the government have absolutely no inkling or respect, really, in the end, for culture. They don't care. It's a sop. Uh, Yeah, we do care about uh, WBH, yeah, Oscar Wilde, yeah, of course we do. But they don't actually care. And so anything that I did, and I, I stopped my career for two years to do that. And I might as well have been shouting down a hole. It made no difference whatsoever. But I do believe that we have an extremely uh, strange relationship with our so-called diaspora. When people leave this country, they do not forget it. Um, They read the Irish Times online. They know what's going on. They... um, They are connected emotionally and spiritually to this country. But people here, once the emigrant is gone, unless it's a member of your family, they don't really care. And I've spoken to other emigrants about this, and they've come back from lives in uh, America and Canada and Australia and China. They can barely get in a minute of of trying to explain what life is like for them. And... um, I, I talked to a friend of mine, an American friend of mine, and we were here working on something. I said, what's it like for you here? And he said, nobody ever listens to anything I say. He said, you know, they'll, they'll give me a surface thing and they'll say, yeah, how's it going? And he'll say, yeah, well, I live in wherever. And the next thing they'll say, did you hear Seamus uh, McGillicuddy fell off his bike the other day and, and the, the, the knee is banjaxed? And they start talking about local things. And they never explain who Seamus McGillicuddy is. And so Tom Murphy wrote brilliantly about this in Conversations on a Homecoming. So what you're, what's questioned then is your identity. Who are you when you leave this country? 
Are you forgotten? To a great extent, you are forgotten. What's your life like in the other country? People don't really uh, examine or question that. And I think that if I may be in treatment a little bit psycho- uh, Freud in here about this, I think that a tribe in order to survive has to have a sense of um, total cohesion. And if somebody leaves the tribe for whatever reason, at a very deep, unconscious, psychological level, they're regarded as traitors. They're people who have left the tribe to its fate. And again, Tom Murphy wrote about that brilliantly in, uh, in, the, in uh, Famine. So when people come back to this country having left it, they have a crisis of identity. And they don't know whether they're from over there or from here. And people who have uh, parents or grandparents or great-grandparents who left regard Ireland as a spiritual home. And they come back here on a most sacred journey looking for their, what's laughingly, but many people, as their roots. And they sometimes we don't treat those people with respect. I hear people saying, ah, oh, the Yanks are up there beyond looking for their roots. Yeah. And so uh, we have a very conflicted notion about what it means to be an immigrant and how many immigrants are actually homesick for Ireland. It comes out in kind of facile things about, oh, I miss Tato and <laughs> Bulmer Sidon and stuff like that. But you can miss things like landscape, humour, the connection to... Um, the events that happen, uh, you know, at a local and, a, and at a national level. You're not part of that story anymore. But I think one of the most amazing things was those people who came back to vote. They got on a plane, they spent a fortune, they came back and they said, we are part of this country. And it's about time the government woke up and started to look at the complexity of the diaspora and the various groups that they're made up of and not constantly talking about um, trying to attract corporate uh, companies here to give them favourable tax uh, dodging setups and to say, let's look at uh, how diverse, how complex... Uh, our, our, our diaspora actually are and what can we do to connect with them and not let them feel all the time that the only reason they're connected with is through business or through tourism or through um, y- you know some version of trying to get them back here uh, to spend money because that's not me talking that's a lot of people out there uh, who feel that and um, I think we need to give those people the vote because that's also a human right. If you are a citizen of this country, just because you're forced to go or because you choose to go in, in some instances, do you then lose your fundamental right to vote? What are they afraid of by giving the vote to people? Um, I think that's something that an awful lot of young people in America and Australia and Canada really feel deeply about. They want to feel important. They want to feel that they're being given the same right as the people who live here. They don't want to feel that when they get on that boat and that plane that they are forgotten in every way. Yeah. Um, we haven't talked too much about your work and we, we don't have that much more time, but you've been in over 60 films, I think it is, or been involved in them. And um, at Swim Two Birds was a project you were going to be involved in. Where is that now? Is it, st- is it going to happen? I mean, is it hard when these things take so long to get off the ground? Most movies take 
<clears throat> they can take anything from two to seven to ten years to get made. Um, and that's why when I go into a cinema and I look at the, the picture, I always stay to the credits because nobody sets out to make a bad film. And you know that the pushing of that rock up seven years of disappointment and so forth. So <clears throat> whatever's on the screen, I look at it and I, you know, may love it or not, but I'll always appreciate the effort that's gone into it. Um, At Swim Two Boards has a script by Brendan Gleeson from a novel by Miles Nagopoulin with <clears throat> Killian Murphy, Colin Farrell, Michael Fassbender, uh, myself... Um, I'm leaving out two or three other people. Oh, there's enough to be going on with. <laughs> there's <isn't> enough <laughs> to be going on with. And you know what? Because movies, movies are products that get made by a factory called Hollywood. And if somebody says, look, I don't really see this as something that's going to travel, we're not going to finance it. And so it's had its, it's had its problems being financed, even with those names attached to it. It's even incredible, with it. isn't it? And so, yeah. But if you came along and said, look, um, this is a story about a, a cocaine dealer in Kulak uh, who shoots, uh, you know, shoots up a cop station, you'll get the money pretty handy for that. Well, what else are you working on? Um, I'm going to I'm going back to Broadway, which I haven't been I haven't done for quite a while. I've done two O'Neill plays on Broadway, A Moon for the Misbegotten and A Touch of the Poet, and now I, I'm going back to Broadway to do uh, Lunday's Journey in Tonight with uh, Jessica Lang. God, that's great. Yeah, and I'm doing a, a movie and um, I'm doing two movies before that. So um, that'll take care of the next uh, next year or Is so. He? Someone mm. in here, and it wasn't me, said to ask you what's it like being an ageing sex symbol, and I, I thought that was a funny question. It wasn't me, but have you anything to say on that, Mr Gabriel Byrne? Well, there's two things in there, <laughs> ageing and I know, sex I didn't symbol. like it, that ageing bit. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, well, I remember Robert Redford, who is a bona fide... Um, ageing sex symbol. Sex symbol. <laughs> he, at 49 years of age, he did a movie called Havana. Uh, and the reviews for that movie were not about what kind of a film it was. They were movies that criticised the way he looked, and they were saying that Robert Redford from The Sting is no longer who he was. Um, And I thought that was really unfair, but an ageing sex symbol. (laughs) First of all, Honestly, I don't think of myself as aging at all. Of course, we're all aging. The clock is ticking louder for, for me than it was, you know, 20 years ago. But aging I am, aging I always was. Sex symbol, I don't even know what that means. But I remember somebody said to me, uh, an American actress said to me, Gabriel, I don't want to be reductive and I don't want to objectify you. But, and she said, you're a sex symbol. And I thought, objectify, wow. So I don't know what that means, really. But it was nice. It was nice to be considered in that way, but very limiting, too. It goes back to what we were talking about, people being judged by their physicality, because you can get trapped by that, too. Mm. 
So um, I think you've managed it well, though. Aging, yes. Sex symbol. <laughs> yes, well. we're nodding. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, Father and Son is a fantastic Father's Day present, um, yeah. which people should buy in aid of the hospice. I think it's twenty euro. Brilliant gift, mm. and you'd, you'd encourage people to go out and buy it. I'd say. Please do. Okay, and listen, Gabriel Byrne, thank you so much for coming in. Thanks, Roisin. Roisin meets in association with the new Audi A1.